Welcome to Friday, you guys. Let's get started. All right. Yes, Heather, you probably come to you with the heads bowed, our minds clear, drama free, uncluttered, unchained, unbound. We ask you for your love, your guidance, your grace, and your love. We have the instrument for all to hear your word through me. That we have the most phenomenal day on the planet. In Jesus' name. Man. All right, family. Let's get started. I'm ready. Y'all ready? I'm ready. Okay. So, I actually have been in deliberation of actually starting after the new year or after this week. And then I just kept being drawn back and listening to my own words. It's like, um, I don't know if you guys saw my post about the hardest thing to do is always starting. It doesn't matter what you're starting. I don't know, anybody see that post? Did you see that, Christine? No? I posted it yesterday. I had this major epiphany about how everything in life, it's not hard doing it. It's hard starting. Even in the business, it's hard starting. If you're going to actually get on a diet, it's hard starting. If you're going to get into the gym, it's hard starting. But once you create the habit, of doing things, it becomes part of your ritual, like brushing your teeth. And just in that spell of being underground, I was like, oh, okay, I gotta get back on the grind. You know, and it recalibrates. And then I don't know if any of you guys had, what I had with was withdrawals from this call. So I figured I need to get back on the horse and not wait until the end of the year, but I needed it now, like right now. So I needed Jesus right now. I needed his blessings right now. I needed you guys right now. So I hope you guys missed me as much as I missed you. <laughs> so that is why we are here this morning. Um, uh, I was never far, just not close enough. The scripture that actually came to me that I want to start with on these five days, since you guys can follow for those that are still, is actually Hebrews 6. So if you guys uh, are near the word or whatever, I'm going to jump in, and the chapter that I want to go into is actually Hebrews 6. Uh, and then I'll give you guys the heads up for moving forward as uh, for tomorrow so you guys can be ahead of the curve. And then I'll do that again. But, um, and I know that we're going into the weekend, and I normally don't like to do weekends, but I need every day up until the day Jesus was born for people to recognize what day it really is <laughs> so they don't get lost in, oh, it's Christmas. And, you know, they're spelling Christmas or Christ with an X. <laughs> so, uh, Hebrews 6. I'm going to jump right into the water and get it warm for you guys so you guys could actually join me. It's a very powerful uh, verse that was um, actually shared with me from a very close friend and confidant. Um, it really goes in and starts like this. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying against, again, I'm sorry, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith. And that's the operative word I want you to get from this morning is faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is possible it is possible 
not impossible, but it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of, of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And it is, and it is in, if you will, that just reminds me, I need to make sure this is off. There we go. Okay, forgive me. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And there lies the capture of this whole conversation. Faith and patience to inherit the promises. As we go into 13, the certainty of God's promise. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the, patient, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner peace behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. I'm going to have to learn how to phonetically say that, but you get it. So in that, it's in the order of. That being said, let's break that down so you guys can actually get the message that I'm getting from it. And it really is powerful in regards to moving forward into this week. Um, coming up being the last week. Uh, we have 10 days, 11 days technically left in this year. 10 for you guys over in Australia. But really what's really being broken down here is a warning to discouraged believers is what Hebrews 6 is about. For those who are taking copious notes, it is a warning to those that don't believe, more so those that don't have faith, 
that of a mustard seed and understanding what God's promises are to us if we stand in his faith that everything that you want is already yours. Um, talking to what I call my confidant and my second ear, I was having a conversation about this conversation last night and in this morning, which I was half asleep getting the little I could this morning, but last night when I was actually getting guidance on where to go in the word for this, it's really about, uh, we, were, we were actually comparing some of the most profound statements ever given to us. And so if God, and this was a statement that was given to me, if God was actually to give you a preview of your life and you understand that this is a preview of your life, that you understand that that's what God does in giving you a vision of anything that is an idea or a thought within your heart, and the preview is already there, that means that the movie is already complete, that everything that you want is already yours. That means you've already owned it, meaning they cannot make a trailer to a movie until the movie is complete. Your movie's already complete. You know, all the rest of the stuff that you go through, we create, if that makes sense. You know, all the drama, all the problems, all the challenges, when we feel hopeless, when we feel faithful, when we feel high, when we feel happy, when we feel low, when we feel down, that's all the stuff we just put in the movie. But the movie's already been written and everything that you want is already claimed on the blood of Jesus. All you have to do is walk into it and make sure and have faith that through the trials and tribulations of writing this and rewriting and rewriting, that you finish the movie properly and that you get everything that God has already promised you. Is that making sense to you that can hear me? Yes, okay, now watch this. A, the essential nature of maturity, going beyond the basics, therefore leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. As we look at six, therefore, as it starts with therefore, it means that, you know, the person writing this, as he has the pen in his hand, rebuked his readers for the spiritual immaturity, but he knew that nothing was gained by treating them as immature. He continued with the instructions and warnings. Elementary, elementary principles in the first verse, this has the idea of rudiments of ABCs. They are basic building blocks that are necessary but must be built upon, meaning you have to have a solid foundation to build your faith on. Perfection. This is the ancient Greek word, teleotis, which is much better understood as maturity. See, the Hebrews did say that we can reach perfection on this side of eternity, but that we can and should reach a place of maturity in Jesus. The call is plain. Let us go to perfection. Teleotis does not imply complete knowledge, but a certain maturity in the Christ faith. As you look at 1B and 2, if you will, the second verse, some of the basics go beyond, meaning not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on, the, laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Not laying again the foundation, these elementary principles are given in three pairs, repentance, faith, go together baptisms and laying on of hands go together. Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment are paired together. See, not laying again the foundation. Many people regard this as a biblical list of important elementary principles for the Christ life. The biblical study and discipleship series have been taught developing each one of these specific topics. 
And I'll see them again. I mean, they're right there in the scripture right there. Repentance and faith, baptisms and layings of hands, resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. To understand this list, one must ask basic questions. What distinctively is Christ, or what better said, what is distinctively Christian about this list? Where is the specific mention of Jesus or salvation by grace alone? And could one believe in or practice these things and still not be a follower of Jesus Christ and not believe in him to be the Messiah? See, we say you have to tithe, you got to do this, you got to do that, you got to pray. No, you just have to have faith and have a belief system, and that will give you your salvation. When we consider the rudiments one by one, it's remarkable how little in the list is distinctive of Christianity, for practically every item could have been in its own place, really from a Jewish Orthodox perspective, meaning it comes from a, Juda a Judaic space, but it's not applicable or absolute too, if that makes any sense. Of the doctrine of baptisms, right? Not even baptisms, as it is used in this passage, is necessarily Christ-like or Christian. The specific ancient Greek word here translated baptisms, baptismos, is not the word regularly used in the New Testament to describe Christian baptism. Baptismos is the word used on three other specific instances to refer to Jewish ceremonials, washing, Hebrew 9.10, Mark 7, 4, and Mark 7, 8. This is being recorded. I know I'm talking fast, but I want you to get the essence of this. So I'm talking about the doctrine of baptisms. Then we go into the foundation. In this case, the elementary principles move beyond our all items in a common ground of belief between Christianity and Judaism. This was a safe, common ground for these discouraged Jewish Christians to retreat back to. And this is because Christianity did not grow out of Judaism. It was more a subtle temptation for a Jewish Christian to slip back into Judaism than it was formerly pagan Christians to go back to his pagan ways. So understand this, part of the problem facing the Hebrews was the superficial similarity between the elementary tenets of the Christianity and those of Judaism, which made it possible for Christian Jews to think they could hold on to both. That gets into a much deeper conversation. If you go into verse three, a statement of hope and dependence on God. And this we will do if God permits in that part of the scripture. If God permits, right, this should not be taken as implying that God may not want them to go on to maturity past those basic common to the Christianity and Judaism. If God permits, instead, this expresses the believer's complete dependence on God. If we do press on to maturity, we realize that it only happens at God's pleasure. Breaking that down, if you understand the danger of falling away, meaning getting away from his belief, getting away from his faith, understanding an approach to controversial passages like this, there is a great temptation to shape a difficult passage into what we think it should say according to our theology system or bent. Yet we must first be concerned with understanding what the text says the exposition of it, how it's broken down, before we are concerned with fitting what it says into a system of theology. Systems of theology have, come, have, have some value. They, 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 they have some intrinsic value, if you look a little bit deeper, as they show how biblical ideas are connected and show that the Bible does not contradict itself. But the way to the right systems begins 
with a right understanding of the text, not one that bends the text to fit into the system. Am I making sense? I don't want to go too deep on you guys this morning. You guys with me? Christina, you getting this? Sharon, you guys there? Okay. Now watch this. Four through six, the impossibility of repentance for those who fall away after receiving blessings from God. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since the, cru the crucify again for themselves, the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. Now, for it is impossible. The word impossible here is put in a position of emphasis. See, the Hebrews say this to merely, uh, uh, this is merely difficult, but that it is without possibility. Note the other uses of impossible in, the, in, in Hebrews. If you go through the rest of, this, of, of all of Hebrews, and if you go to, I'm going to give you some reference points here. So reading the book of Hebrews, you got Hebrews 6.18. It is impossible for God to lie. That's a powerful statement. So he's giving us his word. It is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin, Hebrews 10.4. It is impossible to please God without faith, Hebrews 11.6. The word impossible stands immovable. Further in, who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, as we go through the rest of that scripture, here, what, what is being written is to the Hebrews to speak of the people with impressive spiritual experiences. The big debate is whether this is the experience of salvation or the experience of something short of salvation. Looking at each descriptive word helps see what kind of experience this describes. Enlightened. If we look at that word, this ancient Greek word has the same meaning as the English word. It describes the experience of light shining on someone, a new light shining on the mind and spirit, renewing your mind, renewing your spirit. Tasted. Here we have the idea of tasting may mean to test something, but others use this word and indicate a full real experience as, as in how Jesus tasted death in Hebrews 2.9. The heavenly gift is probably salvation in itself which is referred to, by the way, in Romans 6.23 and Ephesians 2.8. Breaking each of that down, partakers of the Holy Spirit, this is a unique term in the New Testament since it means sharing. The Holy Spirit, sharing in the Holy Spirit, it has to do with receiving and having fellowship with the Holy Spirit, who is, in turn, our translator for everything from our Father to his Father, from Jesus Christ to the Father, our Lord tasted the good word of God. This means they experienced the goodness of God's word and saw its goodness at work in them, not around them, but within them. The powers of the age to come. This is a way to describe God's supernatural power. Here, the Hebrews describe those who experience God's supernatural power. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance, one of the most heated debates over any New Testament passage is focused on this specific text. The question is simple. Are these people with these impressive spiritual experiences in fact Christians? Are they God's elect, chosen before the foundation of the word? 
One, uh, one of the sides, if you will, we see clearly that someone can have great spiritual experiences and still not be saved. It's talked about in Matthew 7, by the way. One can even do more, many more religious things and still not be saved. The Pharisees of the New Testament times are a great example of this principle. These men did many religious things, but were not saved or submitted to God. And these ancient Pharisees energetically evangelized, as we talk about in Matthew 23, 15, impressively prayed. I'm giving you all the things that these Pharisees did, but it did not mean that they were saved. So we're talking about energetically evangelized, impressively prayed, made rigorous religious commitments, talked about in Matthew, by the way, all that's in Matthew, strictly and carefully tied, also in Matthew, honored religious traditions, also in Matthew, practiced fasting regularly, Luke 18, 12, yet Jesus called them sons of hell in Matthew 23, 15. Now, you know, that's a heck of a statement for Jesus to be able to call you sons of hell. <laughs> that's the last thing I want Jesus to ever call me of doing all the things we're, supposedly to, we're supposed to do right, but we're still going to, at the end of the day, to be called sons or daughters of hell. See, from a human perspective, it is doubtful that anyone who seemed to have the credentials mentioned in Hebrews 6, 4 through 5 that's the reference points, Hebrews 6, 4 through 5, would not be regarded a true Christian. God knows their ultimate destiny, and hopefully the individual does also. Yet, from all outward appearance, such as Christian experience, might qualify a man to be an elder in many churches, yet beyond the knowledge hidden in the mind of God and the individual in question, from all human observation, we must say these are Christians spoken of in Hebrews 6, 4, and 5. A good example of this is in, Dem in Demas. Paul warmly greeted other Christians on, on his behalf, Colossians 4.14. Demas is called a fellow worker with Paul in Philemon 24. Yet Paul condemned Demas, at least hinting at apostasy in 2 Timothy 4.10. Taking all this together, if you wrap it all up in a bow, we see that it is possible to display some fruit of spiritual growth, then to die spiritually, showing that he, that right there, the soil of the heart was never right. It's talked about in Mark 4, 16 through 19. So you're saying, is everybody getting this? So the profile, it's like the profile of a giant for God that still will never be saved because God knows in a man or a woman's heart really where you're coming from and where you're going. And if you truly host that one seed of faith as a believer to do what you're called to do on purpose and on intent versus what you're saying for other people to hear and create a show is what my interpretation is. You're just walking around, going through the acts. It's like your child. You tell your child to go clean up his room and he does just enough to make it look like he actually did something until you go to his closet and see a whole bunch of stuff just piled up high in there. You're like, I told you to fold up the clothes, clean up the room. Well, I cleaned up the room. I didn't think you were going to look in the closet. See, God is looking in the closet. Is anybody following me in this conversation? So it may look good to everybody else who walked in and just visited the house and opened up the room. Oh, yes, son, he's, he's so neat. You open up the closet and everything fall out. <laughs> so when you look at that for it, it is impossible if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, despite their impressive spiritual experience or at least the appearance 
of it, as I'm just talking, I just just talking about, these are in grave danger. If they fall away, it is impossible for them to repent. So, if you look at this, still others think that this penalty deals only with reward, not with salvation itself. They stress the idea that it says repentance is impossible, not salvation. Therefore, these are Christians of low commitment and experience who risk a loss of all heavenly reward saved only by the skin of their teeth. This difficult passage is best understood in the context of Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, where it's actually going in and the Hebrews mean that if they retreat back to Judaism, all the religious repentance in the world will do them no good. Retreating from distinctive Christianity into the safe ideas and customs of their former religious experience is to forsake Jesus and to essentially crucify him again. This is especially true for these ancient Christians from a Jewish background since the religious customs they took up again likely included animal sacrifice for atonement, denying the total work of Jesus for them on the cross. If they fall away, there is a necessity, there's, there's a necessity here, a distinction between falling, uh, falling and falling away. Listen to what I said. There's a major distinction between falling and falling away. Falling away is more than falling into sin. It is actually departing from Jesus himself. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. Proverbs, you guys remember that book? You remember that book? You remember that book? 2416. So the difference is between a Peter and a Judas. If you depart from Jesus and fall away, there is no hope. The message to these Christians who felt like giving up was very clear. If you don't continue on with Jesus, don't suppose you will find salvation by just going on with the ideas and the experience that Christianity and Judaism share. If you aren't saved in Jesus, you aren't saved at all. There is no salvation in a safe common ground that is not distinctively Christian or Christ-like. If someone falls away, we must understand why he or she can't repent. It is because they don't want to. It is not as if God prohibits their repentance, since repentance itself is a work of God. That's talked about in Romans 2, 4. The desire to repent is evidence that he or she has not truly fallen away. The idea is not that if you have fallen away or if you fall away, you can't ever come back to Jesus. Instead, the idea is if you turn back you're back on Jesus. Don't expect to find salvation anywhere else, especially in the practice of religion apart from the fullness of Jesus. This passage has nothing to do with those who fear less in condoms than in everything else. And when I say condoms, I'm not talking about condoms like sexually. I'm talking about condemns. Are y'all with me on that so far? I'm talking fast. I'm moving fast. That was a Freudian slip. Stick with me. The presence of that anxiety, like the cry which betrayed the real mother in the days of Solomon, establishes beyond a doubt that you are not one that has fallen away beyond the possibility of renewal to repentance. Now, you go into 7, 8, an illustration of the serious consequences. It gets into the consequences of falling away. Hence, as we talked about Judas again. Now, if you look for the earth which drinks in the rain and bears herbs useful, receives blessings from God, when the, uh, when the earth receives rain and bears useful plants, it fulfills its purpose and justifies the blessing of rain sent upon it. The, get this. The Hebrews here applies it to this point. You've been blessed 
You have been blessed. You have been blessed. But where is the fruit? See, God, look at that. God looks for what grows in us after he blesses us, especially looking for what grows in terms of maturity. You shall know them by their fruit. Is anybody with me this morning? See, it's not just you going through the process. It's how you mature in the process and what he is giving you to see what's going to actually bloom on your branch to be able to know if you can feed the rest of the world from what he is giving you. Hence, much is given, much is received, much is required, but it bears thorns and briars, or if you will, thorns, it is rejected. If ground is blessed by rain but refuses to bear fruit, no one blames the farmer for burning it. The idea shows that growth and bearing fruit are important to keep from falling away. When we really bear fruit, we abide in Jesus, John 15, 5, and are in no danger of falling away. Now we get into what this is all about. For those that have faith and have patience and have a belief, don't be discouraged as you look at number nine. See, here we're talking about it admits. The writer is actually going in that it is little more harsh than it needs to be. Meaning, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. We are confident of better things concerning you. Though he spoke so severely, he's also talking about the Hebrews, was they were confident that his readers would continue on with Jesus. He thinks of their continuation in the faith as one of the things that accompany salvation. These encouraging words after the strong warnings of Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, as we get into 9, after the strong words were spoken, should not be understood to mean that the warnings in the previous verses are not serious or that it's, it's not you know, a warning of the impossible consequences. If anything, verse nine shows how badly things struggle. If these people, if Christians needed encouragement, here it is. Their spiritual danger was not so much out of a calculated rebellion, but more because of a depressing discouragement. They need warning, but also needed encouragement. So you need to know what's going to happen, but I need to encourage you to move forward. Don't be discouraged because God hasn't forgotten about you. 10, 11, and 12. And that whole thing right there, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. He's not unjust. He's not going to forget. He's, he's Trust me, if anybody got a memory, he does because he's going to be here long after we're gone. When we are discouraged, we sometimes think God forgets us and all we have done for him and for his people. But God would deny his own nature if he forgot such things. He would be unjust. God sees and remembers everything. Sometimes our fear that God forgot our work and our labor of love comes from relying on the attention and applause of other people. Listen to what I say. You better listen, Linda. See, when we get caught up in looking for recognition on a stage or from other people or from our mother or from our friends or for validation, we lose sight of what we were doing it for in the first place and what we were put here for. It is true that some people may forget your work and labor of love, but God will never forget what you're doing in his stead. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Here, the Hebrews encourage like a coach, urging believers to press on. The followers of Jesus must keep up their good work, press on with that hope until the end. It says, until the end, and imitate those who inherit, not earn, inherit God's promises. When we fail to do this, discouragement often makes us become sluggish, lethargic, procrastinating, 
stopping, starting. What did I say in the beginning? My whole thing is about the hardest thing is to start. And that's because we get caught up in all the things that are around us thinking we're looking for validation, approval, and love from all the wrong places. But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises instead of giving to discouragement. Imitate those who found the key to gaining God's promises. Faith, 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 and patience as demonstrated by who? Abraham. It just makes too much sense. I hope y'all with me this morning. Do not become sluggish. The idea is that we should not let discouragement make us sluggish or slow to start or slow to get this day on or think that this is a weekend because every day he only took one day and people still don't know if Sunday is Saturday or Saturday is a Sunday, leading to the sense that we may as well give up. First, we lose the desire to press on. Then we lose the desire to go on. Before he was king, David showed a great answer to discouragement. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God, 1 Samuel 36. It is a blessing when others encourage us, but we don't have to wait for that. We do not have to look for that. We do not have to seek other people's approval. We can encourage ourselves in who? God himself, in the Lord himself. Don't be discouraged because God's promises are reliable. 13 through 18, powerful. After he had patiently endured, a season of patient endurance is a time of spiritual attack. Let me tell you something. A season of patient endurance will be a time of spiritual attack. It seems that we may never obtain the promise of God in our life sometimes. It is easy to wonder, will God really come through in my situation? Yes, he will. After he patiently endured, he obtained the promise. After he patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Understand this. It's not that you aren't going to be tempted. It's not that you aren't going to have doubt. It's not that you're going to actually have the devil knock on your door. It's not that he's going to take you up to a cliff and tell you all oh, this could be yours. It's not going to tell you that that man or that woman could be the best thing you could ever have sexually, sensually, or intimately. It's not that he's going to promise you that you can actually get where you want to go with the shortcut, that it's not going to get your eyes open. But it does not mean that if you actually endure, if you, if you, if you don't hold the faith, it's going to show up. You cannot have all the blessings and the gifts if you are going to fight. You cannot get a touchdown if you are going to run through about 10, 12, 13 men on the field. Here in big 300-pound men. You got to go through the defense if you want to get the, if you want to get the trophy on the other side. God came through, through for Abraham, even sealing his promise with an oath. In fact, because he could swear by no, uh, no one greater, he swore by himself. This oath showed that God's promise like his character, are unchanging. Abraham's trust in this was the gateway to the fulfillment of the promise. This passage teaches us that an oath may be lawfully used by Christians, and this ought to be particularly observed on account of fanatical men who are disposed to abrogate the practices of solemn swearing which God has prescribed in his law. See, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to what? Lie. We might have strong consolation. The two immutable, unchanging things are God's promise and God's oath. It is impossible for God to lie in either of these two things. The absolute reliability of God's promise should impress upon us. Now, brethren, who among us dare doubt this? Where is the hardy sinner who dares come forward and say, I impugn the oath of God? Oh, but let us blush 
the deepest scarlet, and scarlet is but white compared with the blush, which ought to mantle the cheek of every child of God to think that even God's own children should, in fact, accuse their heavenly father of perjury. Oh, shame on us. See, strong consolation. God isn't content to give us mere consolation. He wants to give us strong consolation. Now understand how it's broken down in understanding the characteristics of strong consolation. Strong consolation does not depend upon bodily health. Strong consolation does not depend upon the excitement of public services and Christian fellowship. Strong consolation can't be shaken by human reasoning. Strong consolation is stronger than our guilty conscience. It is a strong consolation that can deal with the outward trials when a man has poverty staring him in the face and hears his little children crying for bread when bankruptcy is likely to come upon him through unavoidable losses when the poor man has just lost his wife and his dear children have been put into the same grave when one after another all earthly props and comforts have given away it needs a strong consolation then, not in your picture trials, but your real trials, not in your imaginary whims affection, but in the real afflictions and the blushing storms of life to rejoice then and say, though these things be not with me as I would have them, yet have he made me with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure, this is strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of hope set before us. This is another reason for encouragement, knowing that God has a refuge of hope set before us. We can think of this refuge of hope are like the cities of refuge commanded by the law of Moses as described in Numbers 35. See, both Jesus and the cities of refuge are within easy reach of the person in need. The place of refuge is no, of no use if it can't be reached. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are open to everyone, not just the Israelites, no one who comes the place of refuge is turned away in time of need. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge were places to live in time of need. No one, no one ever came to a city of refuge just to look around. That's like going to look into a Bugatti or, you know, a, you know, a Rolls Royce dealership. Oh, I'm just looking around. You don't just go in there to look around. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are the only alternative for the one in need. Without this refuge, destruction is certain. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge provide protection only within their boundaries. To go outside they provided refuge means death. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge provided full freedom with the death of the high priest. However, there is a crucial distinction between Jesus and the cities of refuge. Pause. There is a major distinction between Jesus and the city of refuge, even though the doors are open to everyone. The cities of refuge only help the innocent. The guilty can come to Jesus and find refuge. <laughs> Let me repeat that. The cities of refuge only helped the innocent. The guilty can still find refuge in God in Jesus Christ, though the doors open. 
as we look at 19 to 20, don't be discouraged because Jesus will lead us into glory, God's glory. See, this here, this hope we have as an anchor. This anchor was a common figure for hope in the ancient world. Here, the idea is that we are anchored to something firm, but unseen, which enters the presence behind the veil. You don't need an anchor for calm seas. The rougher the weather, the more important you anchor is. We need the anchor to hold the ship and to keep it from being wrecked. We need the anchor to stabilize the ship and to keep it more comfortable for those on board. We need the anchor to allow the ship to maintain the progress it has made. The ship must have hold of the anchor, even as we must lay hold of hope. The anchor itself may have a strong grip and be secured to the ocean floor. Yet if it isn't securely attached to the ship, it is of no use. But there is also a sense in which the anchor has hold of the ship, even as hope has hold of us. Is anybody with me this morning? It gets deeper. The anchor analogy doesn't apply perfectly. We are anchored upward in heaven, not down in the ground. And we are anchored to move on, not to stand still. Our anchor is like every other. When it is of any use, it is out of sight. You can't see the anchor. Are y'all following me on this? You aren't supposed to see it. You on the ship. When a man sees the anchor, it is doing nothing. That means you're definitely going to be shipwrecked. Unless it happens to be some small stream anchored or grappling in shallow water, when the anchor is of use, it is gone. You can't see it. There, It, it, it went overboard with a splash. I went far deep down on the ocean, I mean, to an abyss. All among the fish lies the iron holdfast, white out of sight. Where is your hope, my sisters and brothers? Do you believe because you can see? That is not believing at all. You want to see it first. You aren't supposed to see it. Hence, we're talking about faith here. Which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us. This confident if you will, this, this confident anchor-like hope sees us into the very presence of God. Hope is exactly the medicine discouraged Christians need. Discouraged Christians need hope. They need the medicine, the forerunner, even Jesus. We are assured of this access into the presence of God because Jesus has entered as a forerunner. The Old Testament high priest did not enter the veil as a forerunner, only as a representative. The, you get this, Jesus has entered into the immediate presence of God, the Father, so that his people can follow him there. A forerunner, the ancient Greek word, Prodomos, it's actually Prodromos, uh, was a military uh, reconnaissance man. A forerunner goes forward, knowing that others will follow behind him. We are told next that as a four-runner, our Lord has for us entered, that is entered to take possession in our name. When Jesus Christ went into heaven, he did as it were 
look at this. Look around on all the thrones and all the palms and all the hearts and all the crowns and say, I take possession of all these in the name of my redeemed. I am their representative and claim the heavenly places in their name. Yet if Jesus is the forerunner, we are then the afterrunners. There is no forerunners if there are no afterrunners. We should follow hard after Jesus and run hard after him. He has gone before us and he is our pattern. That is why a leader must be the example that people want to follow. Behind the veil, having become the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The temple analogy behind the veil reminds us and all the Hebrews of his previous start into the subject of Jesus as our high priest forever, according to the order in Hebrews 5, 6 through 10. This thought continues into what? The next chapter. Amen. Oh, Jesus. I hope y'all getting as fed as I am. I'm getting full. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is Hebrews 6. It's a very powerful conversation. If you really look into it, because it's screaming that your movie is done, your faith needs to be high, your hope needs to be high, and you need to turn to Jesus no matter what. You can go to these other temples in the cities, which are open. See, we walk by faith, not by sight. God has one thing and one thing only that pleases him, faith. Not how many times you attend church or give to charities. Everything we do, including those above, require a measure of faith. There are levels to the faith, which is why Jesus said, O ye of little faith, there is slow faith, no faith, low faith, little faith. To the degree that you have faith, you can walk out what you can't see in the natural until it manifests. You have to walk in this space. Who has a vision board? Who understands vision? Who really understands sight? We're going into 2020. Perhaps have a home which you have your vision board in your mirror, in your bathroom, in your bedroom. I don't know, but whatever you do, going into the next year, if you don't have a vision board and a completion board, I call it a God completion board, then you have no faith. Have you physically set your feet on territory that you want or have been assigned to that is already yours? Have you already claimed it or is it a someday something hopeful? See, everything is a faith walk. If you can trust this phone is carrying conversation, then you should be able to what? Trust everything else that comes with it. Listen to what I'm saying. God, you got to be able to trust God to keep his own word because one thing he is not ever going to do is lie on himself. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. His word doesn't return back to him void. So when you walk that lot, when you walk that pace, when you walk that step, when you walk into a light, when you walk into your dream, when you claim everything that you want, whether it is a title, whether it's a position, you need to physically, if you see a car that's yours, you should get in and drive it. If you see a house that should be yours, you should go and walk through it. If you see a business that you should develop and, de and, and, and devour in all of everybody else's doubt, you should go and put your hands, you should lay hands on it. You physically 
and, and you need to use every one of your senses because it would not be put into your space of what I call God's eye or his mind unless it was already promised to you. I don't know if y'all hear me. You got to understand, this is not done by proxy. And by the way, this is all words given through a confidant. I got to give that person all the props. It's just you got to understand this is a, a very in-depth conversation of where we're going into this 21st century. Is anybody hearing me and feeling me in this conversation today? So you got to understand Christ is on our side. He spoke the word and his word comes in first place. He is the forerunners. Now, all that being said, when you understand that, then we understand two immutable things, two unchanging, unwavering things, that by two immutable things, it goes back to six, 618. That's the one you want to, that's where I started. You can write that down. 618 is the one that highlights there. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Anything God repent, repeats, he is serious about that he repeats we have this hope as an anchor for the soul as we go into 620 as you have me give the entire parallel of that see that's you, you aren't supposed to be able to see that you got to have fun processing and jumping into it and owning it and just know that if you get into water you're going to get wet there are going to be challenges with everything that you do but you can't sit up there and wallow in it trying to figure it out trying to understand it and hope that something is just going to manifest without a whole lot of sweat equity. No, it's yours if, if, you're, if you're claiming it, if you're claiming it, if you're claiming it. Oh, Jesus. Okay. I am complete because I could go backwards and forward in this chapter. I want y'all to just get the conversation, the message. I approve this message for Hebrews 6.